Welcome back to another great episode of the Millennium Live podcast. I'm the host, Connor Tui. I'm excited to be here as we make our way to 250 episodes of the podcast. It's been a great ride, and we've had a lot of really interesting conversations with some very interesting people and some really amazing partners. One of them I have on the podcast today. We're going to be talking life-changing virtual mental health care. It's a talk that I really want to have with our healthcare leaders because our healthcare system wasn't designed to deliver the kind of care that people with anxiety and depression need and need it the most. And here's the dim reality, which we're going to talk about today, is that millions of people, it's more than 75% of those with anxiety and depression, don't get good care. To bring that on, we have a great guest who's going to be combing through this issue with us, who has a passion for mental health and combines that with 20 years of strategic healthcare experience. I want to welcome Jeremy Keim. He's Brightside Health's Vice President of Commercial. Jeremy, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Connor. So a little bit about Jeremy, just uh, I'm very excited to talk mental health and, and, and an expert's perspective on this issue. But um, you've you are you're such a veteran of the space. You spent a lot of time, you know, at Aetna, eight years at, at Aetna. You you've spent time at United Health Group, and of course, you spent the last couple of years now with Brightside Health. So, with that being said, I want to dive right in a little bit more and talk to me to and to the audience about your passion for mental health care and a, a little bit about your role at, at Brightside Health and 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 sort of what you're trying to accomplish there. All right. Excellent. Uh, so yeah, as, as you mentioned, Connor, I, I kind of grew up on the health plan side of the industry. Grew up at Aetna, uh, where I, I think getting a strong foundation in uh, the actuarial work and understanding the needs and wants of large employees really provided a strong foundation. Uh, but as I got into the sort of enter, entering the third decade in uh, in my career, I realized I want to get closer to care delivery. As the VP of commercial at Brightside Health, I have an opportunity to help expand Brightside Health's life-saving the healthcare services to those who really need it most. Uh, and that includes across commercial, across Medicare, across Medicaid, uh, working in partnership with uh, health care uh, partners, like health uh, provider groups, uh, health systems as well. And, and I came to Brightside really having focused uh, the last, I would say probably the last four or five years while I was on the payer side, really working more on mental health and, and substance use benefits for large employers. And I saw a couple things. The first was having been on the payer side for the vast majority of my career, I saw a number of quality gaps that existed in particular within mental health. Brightside Health's focus from the start on quality uh, is something that appealed to me right out the gate. Uh, the second was that the supply demand imbalances in mental health are just not going away anytime soon. If everyone that has a mental health condition wanted to start care tomorrow, they would not be able to do it. Uh, there's not enough clinicians. By looking at out across the industry, the organizations that were trying to actually deliver care in a different way, more efficiently and effectively uh, to more people is something that also appealed to me. When I looked at Brightside, focus on optimizing outcomes at scale while also addressing the most important issues facing those with mental health issues, for example, suicidal ideation uh, is something that I wanted to be part of. And then the third reason, having supported large employers, uh, as I mentioned throughout my career, uh, more on their benefit strategy, I had a chance to see sort of the good and the bad that comes with that. The good is that it really drives a lot of innovation in the uh, the marketplace. It really forces insurers and providers and nurses to really understand a little bit differently about how to deliver care that's very consumer focused and ultimately improving outcomes. 
But at the same time, it, it does create a two-tiered health system in some ways. Uh, and so when I looked at what Brightside was doing, having started in the consumer market, moving beyond that into commercial, where we started about two years ago, really focusing on our first commercial contracts with groups like Aetna United and Cigna, Brightside has and continues to be committed to expanding that into the markets that truly need it most, which I'm happy to dive into in a moment, which include Medicare, Medicare Advantage plans, uh, as well as uh, the Medicaid beneficiaries. We'll definitely dive into and and in order to get to some of these great solutions uh, that that you hinted at, we do have to talk about the issues and, and the, really it's a crisis that's going on because in the U.S. specifically, it shows no sign of abating. There's limited access and there's low quality care. In fact, the CDC data indicates that suicides reached an all-time high in 2022 last year. That's not a good trend. How are you seeing this impact healthcare as a whole? And, and, and that includes how it's affecting payers, how it's affecting health systems, and how it's affecting patients. Sure. Great number of things to cover there. Uh, I think in, in order to, to look at how this impacts healthcare, I'd like to just start with the single patient. Typical time from onset of symptoms to getting help for mental health issues is 11 years. I mean, if you let that sink in for a moment, what were you doing 11 years ago? Very different, right? Very different space. A lot of things have happened. My oldest daughter is 12, right? She would have been a one-year-old. It's a very different life. <laughs> and that's just from onset of symptoms to actually thinking I'm going to start to get care. Then when they want to actually seek care, the wait time for a specialist is anywhere from six months to a year uh, in the mental health care part of the market. You think about the supply side of, of the mental health care crisis. So if I mentioned earlier, if everyone that had a mental health illness wanted to get care tomorrow, there aren't enough clinicians. You look at some counties, 60% of counties across the U.S. have not even a single psychiatrist. Um, so you, you think about a specialist in certain parts of the country, there's just no access. This is really concerning when you think about the fact that one in five individuals are reporting mental illness. So you think about the demand side of, of the equation, uh, and there are over 50,000 suicides every single year that are happening. Um, so even if there is specialization and there are specialists available, you still have this, this issue of a demand and, and, and supply mismatch. Now you start to think about how that patient presents. So you think about that patient today who is struggling and experiencing suicidal ideation without access to that specialty care locally, during uh, an acute need, they're ending up in the emergency department. Those emergency departments are being overrun with patients. Uh, mental health visits have nearly doubled in the ED over the last 10 years. This challenge is really not something that EDs are equipped to do. EDs are equipped to do a lot of things and something that they're not as equipped to do at scale is really supporting those in, in mental health with that mental health episodes. Uh, and they're really not the place that will should be. I think about that patient experience. They're typically there overnight. They're waiting for a bed to be uh, available for them somewhere. And many times they're ending right back where they were in the ED. About 14% of those end up back in the ED within 30 days, which leads to worsening care and worsening outcomes. Uh, and if you think about how this impacts the health system and the health plans from a cost perspective, just think back to that patient experience. Um, it's a suboptimal experience at best for the patient, but too often it's a deadly cycle uh, where they're back and forth into the ED and ultimately not get able to get the, the treatment that they have. And if you think back to a couple of those examples there, you think back to the 60% of counties without a single psychiatrist, you think about the fact that people are going to the ED for access to care, they're ending right back there. What that means is that there's a lack of high quality access to them wherever they may live. Uh, and that's where you start to look at solutions around high quality virtual mental health care being something that can really deliver care wherever the person is safely and conveniently from, again, from wherever they are. Those numbers are, they're outrageous. And I think it's far too long that individuals with elevated suicide risk and mental health issues have been, they've been left behind in our healthcare system. And it's time for, 
for, for serious solutions. And that's where I want to bring Brightside into the conversation because Brightside Health launched uh, Crisis Care, which is a program for patients with elevated suicide risk. And I'm interested in, in learning more about that. So could you tell us more about this program and, and some of the some of the goals that it has. Yeah, absolutely. Crisis Care is a first of its kind national telehealth program for treating individuals with elevated suicide risk. The life-saving program is based on the clinically proven collaborative assessment and management of suicidality framework, um, which is also called CAMS. So you hear me refer to it as CAMS uh, throughout the conversation here. When we were looking at our own data, I mentioned earlier that we start and really focus on quality. One of the key points of quality is looking at data. When we looked at our own data, we saw that while we were able to treat and support the 47% of patients who were coming to us with some level of suicidal ideation, and we were successful in eliminating suicidal ideation in about 77% of those patients within 12 weeks, we were still having to refer a good portion of potential patients. So think of a patient, potential individuals who were raising their hand for care. We were having to send them to those EDs that I mentioned earlier, which wasn't a great experience. Um, so you think about that ED being one of the places you really don't want to end up, you're ending up back in there. I'm not going to rehash the member experience I just mentioned earlier, but ultimately what members or what, what patients or individuals really need for those that are considering suicide or contemplating suicide or just coming out of an ED for having uh, attempted suicide is timely access to specialized care. And those two things go together. Uh, so it's one thing if you've got expertise, uh, we, I mentioned CAMS, it's a framework that works. The issue is that not everyone is trained on CAMS. The issue is that not everyone wants to deliver care using CAMS because of supervision concerns and, and concerns about safety. One of the things that virtual and digital combined allow us to do is to really have a second eyes and ears watching uh, over the patient's care, whether it's through that one-on-one clinician or more broadly throughout their, their course of treatment with us. So one of the things that we first started with was really looking at how do you deliver crisis care safely uh, in a virtual environment and do that again with that timely, uh, effective delivery of that treatment within 48 hours or less. We spent some time really working through a couple aspects of this. One is on the on the patient side, understanding what the patient experience is like. But the second is really looking at clinicians, right? There's a reason why, again, as I mentioned just briefly ago, that clinicians do not want to necessarily deliver CAMs or deliver care to those with suicidal ideation. And it's because they're concerned that they're not equipped to handle. So there's a training aspect and being able to deliver it appropriately. So when we reached out to our clinician community and we reached out to clinicians, uh, we did ask um, how comfortable they would feel delivering care, assuming the supervisions were put in, assuming the model was easy to, to work with, that it was integrated into the care flows. And what we found was that not only was there openness, but our clinicians raised their hand uh, to really want to try to support patients knowing having delivered care on our platform, they understood the clinical supervision we built in as well as the clinical decision frameworks that us delivering care to those with elevated suicide risk was something that they wanted to be part of. When we look at our initial results of crisis care, it's important to point out that our initial results are looking very similar to the five plus uh, randomized controlled studies over 30 years of research that CAMS has published themselves. So while it's still early days with our delivery of, of, of crisis care, we're seeing results that are on par with uh, what has been been around again for, for 30 years in the brick and mortar practice. We just happen to be able to deliver it to those parts of the country that do not have a psychiatrist, that do not have access to mental health services. And we're able to continue to maintain and uh, in, in doing that uh, start of care within 48 hours of someone raising their hand for help. Wow. You recently announced that in some new partnerships that will promote mental health care access among those in, in who have had who have signed up for Medicare and uh, Medicaid. That's kind of unique. You know, what what are some of the mental health needs of uh, these beneficiaries? Given that you know these are more likely to be an older population or a, or a, a poorer population, 
why did Brightside choose to expand services to these audiences? And given the fact that it's probably you know, important to make sure all people are taken care of. So I think it goes back to where I started the conversation about why I joined Brightside and, and our goal of, of bringing life-saving mental health care to those who need it most. When you look at the numbers uh, for Medicare and Medicaid beneficiaries, they have at least equal, if not greater, need for mental health services, while at the same time typically having less supply or access uh, to those uh, to the clinicians that can deliver the expertise in a timely manner. Now, a couple stats I'll, I'll, I'll share. So recent estimates indicate that one in four Medicare beneficiaries are uh, that are uh, are living with a mental illness, but only 40 to 50% of them are actually receiving treatment. So you think about there's need, but not as many are, are accessing care that that uh, should. Uh, only one in four psychiatrists are in network with Medicare Advantage plans. Uh, that's actually lower than commercial and actually lower than Medicaid plans. So you think about the dearth that I mentioned of not even having a psychiatrist in the county, let alone having them in network is something that Medicare Advantage beneficiaries struggle with. Uh, and when you look at Medicaid, Medicaid is the single largest payer for mental health services in the U.S. Um, and so you, you start from a place of there's a there's a strong need and understanding for mental health care services. Uh, it's going to continue to impact those on an increasing and disproportionate burden from a, a Medicare and Medicaid perspective. And when you look at what's happening at the state level, Medicare and Medicaid are starting to become more and more closely linked, even though Medicare is a federal program and Medicaid is administered by the states, there's a lot more pressure on plans to support those uh, in the duals population, those that are both of advanced age and, and uh, um, have, have lower incomes. Uh, so the Medicare and Medicaid combined. It makes it very hard for patients to access care if there's not appropriate levels of, of treatment. So when you look at those combined and where you look at the, the need in the the Medicare and Medicaid part of the market, uh, as well as the uh, the lack of supply. It's something that is, again, back to what we, we set out to do when Brightside was founded in 2017. It fit very nicely uh, and was really a natural extension to us delivering crisis care. If you look at where more people are in need, uh, it kind of coalesces around the same crisis care, Medicare, Medicaid being a place to, to support. Yeah, I mean, these services are are necessary for these people. And I'm curious as to some of these outcomes that you've seen since launching these partnerships and, and CAM. You know, how can virtual health, telehealth services really benefit Medicare and Medicaid populations? And, you know, by doing so, what have you seen since you've introduced these services to those populations? Yeah, I think there's a couple of things I, I like to start with, again, an N of one in, in the patient experience. So I, I look at my parents, right? Both of them are Medicare beneficiaries. Uh, and if there are any indication, their generation has no problem using smartphones to, to access and engage in just about everything in, in their lives. Uh, sometimes a little bit too much, <laughs> but but just starting from that that perspective that they're, they are able to engage in the use of virtual care delivered via a smartphone. Similarly, use of smartphones in the Medicaid population is much higher than many think. In fact, some states are actually providing devices devices to, again, help to enable those, especially in rural areas that may lack broadband, to be able to access care. So the mm. the need and almost the, or the, the supply and the, the ubiquity of virtual services is something that is starting to become uh, much more advanced. But we wanted to see what our own data looked like. So what we did was we took a, a look at our own data based on populations that we were already serving prior to entering Medicare and Medicaid, those that were of, of a more advanced age, so the over 60 years old, 65 years old, looking at our own 
patient populations there, as well as those that make less than uh, $30,000 a year. So we collect a lot of demographic information in addition to a, a lot of other uh, clinical information on, on patients, which does allow us to look at, at things and, and study them. So we, we published uh, results in Frontiers of uh, in Psychiatry, demonstrating that for those that were above the age of 60, their engagement and their results, their outcomes were very similar to a younger population. And similarly, we looked at those that made less than $30,000 a year and those that made over $60,000 a year. And again, saw very similar improvements over a similar trajectory. One interesting fact, and it goes back to how I started the example here of, of my parents, is that if you look at the way our care model works for those in therapy, uh, as well as for those using in psychiatry, it's not only face-to-face -face video sessions, but it's also asynchronous messaging. So messaging back and forth with their clinician and completing self-paced modules in between treatment, especially on the therapy side. And what we found for both of those was that those of, of higher age actually engaged more. They were sending more messages back and forth with their clinicians and engaging in care in between their synchronous sessions. Again, kind of showing that they're with the right type of engagement model, with the right type of resources, uh, these populations will engage uh, in similar, in some cases, better ways. This is a great technology that's really having a big benefit to those populations. And I'm fascinated and honored to talk to somebody like you who is out there in the field helping. So, you know, we've talked a lot about some of the benefits of virtual mental health services. Hopefully this continues to expand for patients, especially for those who really need them maybe on the hospital and health system side. And and of course, you know, being a health system, you want to make sure you improve outcomes and, and save lives and reduce that risk of suicide. What are some of the best practices and, and steps that health systems and organizations can take to expand access and expand their support? Let's start with the hospitals and health system. So traditionally, They've been the foundation of healthcare, of how healthcare is delivered in this country. Uh, and I think that's, they serve a very critical functional role of how society operates. When you think about how they're delivering care and how they've delivered care, historically it has been face-to-face -face in person. And for many conditions, that is appropriate. When you look at how patients' needs have changed over time as technology has become more ubiquitous and the, and the use of smartphones for, for doing just about anything, and those needs have changed and evolved, the industry challenges that we expect that we would expect to change, not all the time have. Um, so you look at clinician burnout, you think about clinician shortages, you think about long wait times, those same issues still exist even when you start to bring in things like being able to have video monitoring someone that's in the bed, making sure that you're not having to have someone bedside all the time, but being able to monitor it using technology. But again, those same issues still, still persist. When you look at how health systems and, and hospitals can really look at innovative partnerships, especially in the telemental healthcare space. I think that there is a way for collaboration. You started to ask a, a little bit about best practices and next steps. If you look at the way that patients, hospitals, health systems can work together to ultimately offer timely, easy access to mental health appointments, measurably better outcomes, reduce ED, inpatient readmissions, which from a quality perspective is what they're all trying to strive for. But if you're doing it in a way that also helps reduce clinician burnout, address some of the shortages that are that are facing the industry, as well as reducing wait times and allowing brick and mortar health systems and hospitals to think about the ED use case, if, if they're really great at serving as a trauma unit and being able to support someone who actually needs eyes and ears and hands and, and instruments on a patient, then the community is better served if there's a partnership with virtual resources uh, for those that virtual is appropriate. And if you were to look at, as one of the questions I typically get asked ask, after that is, what does the future look like, right? Is it brick and mortar? Is it all virtual? I think that the future is hybrid, right? I think that there is a place for face-to-face. -face. I think that there is a place for virtual. 
and, and I think the, where the future will kind of come together is a collaboration and connections that are enabled in some cases virtually, delivered in person, and all shared uh, collectively uh, using technology and, and data exchanges to make sure that no matter where someone is showing up, those pieces uh, of information and ultimately that patient, I keep mentioning earlier, that patient benefits no matter where they're, they're sort of entering uh, the, the healthcare system. Right. Yeah, I, I talk a lot about on this podcast, speaking about clinician and, and nursing burnout and how that's affecting health systems big time. And just to end the podcast, Jeremy, about your thoughts on on maybe the bright side of things to, to talk about the future and talk <laughs> what's, what's next for for uh, for bright side. And it's it's just I love hearing about solutions tech and technology that is that is doing really good in the community. So someone who has been in the industry for as, as, as long and had uh, such a great career as you have, what does the future hold for, for Brightside? I mean, the, the numbers, of, of course, uh, speak for themselves. You're, you're seeing drastic improvements, uh, which is great, and there's always more to be done. The fact that this technology exists is one thing, but uh, where do you see it going in the next decade? Yeah, I, I think a couple of things I mentioned earlier around when we looked at where we were delivering care and what we could do better. And we started with psychiatry, we added therapy, we then added therapy for those with elevated suicide risk. And all of that was based on data that we were seeing internally, as well as data that we were seeing out in the market, where there was need and where we weren't able to necessarily support that need most probably with our services. So we got into crisis care, and we, we launched that program. Moving into Medicare and Medicaid is something that we're going to continue to do as well. Um, so we started with Medicare Advantage just last month. We're expanding into Medicare Part B, as well as going to be delivering care to our first Medicaid beneficiaries. You'll also see us continuing to deepen our relationships with health systems and other healthcare partners. Uh, you start to think about who we serve. And if you were to take away one thing from this podcast, if you think about where does Brightside fit in the, the spectrum of mental health services, the fact that we can treat those safely, virtually, while they're still struggling with suicidal ideation and delivering outcomes is something that I want all the listeners to, to, to take away from. Um, so again, that's all going to be as we're moving to the market, into Medicare and Medicaid more deeply, as continue to think of us as a place to support those who have uh, elevated suicide risk, uh, which is something that's continuing to be a problem, unfortunately, that we face as, as a country. Appreciate you taking the time out to talk with me on the podcast about all this. It's really great to have a partner like Brightside Health who's making a difference in the world. Jeremy, thank you so much for joining the Millennium Live podcast. It was really great to have you and and just learn a lot more about what Brightside is doing. Some gut-wrenching statistics, but I'm glad there are solutions and people who are out there who are helping. Hopefully, maybe even next year, bring you back on for a good update. So, Jeremy, thanks again for joining us. We'll see you soon. Yeah, thanks, Connor. I would be uh, welcoming that that opportunity to come back next year. If anyone's interested in learning more about Brightside Health or our care model and, and the markets that we're starting to serve even more uh, deeply uh, or interested in partnering out with us directly, please reach out at, to me at partnerships at brightside.com or reach out to me on LinkedIn. 